Hi folks, thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. We do need your support. We're an entirely independent, ad-free, sponsor-free podcast platform that wants to be able to continue to have conversations without the interference of editorial lines and corporate interests. And if we've learned anything over the last few months, it's that independent media really matters nowadays. So please join us on patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It's the easiest bit of activism you can do on a monthly basis. It's the price of a fancy cup of coffee for you once a month, but for us, it's mics on and you're creating the space for conversations like the one you're about to listen to keep happening. It's not a one-way street. You get all of our podcasts, all of our back catalogue in one consolidated feed, entirely plea-free so you don't have to listen to me beg for your support, and you get the podcast as quickly as I can turn them around, including this week alone, a troubling but necessary conversation that we had with Nadia Hardman, who is the author and lead researcher behind the report into the massacres that have occurred on the Yemen-Saudi Arabia border. A really powerful podcast, and we're very grateful for Nadia taking the time to join us. There was also the latest from the lads on the ditch on Leo Varadkar versus Sippo, and plenty of exclusives to stay behind the paywall. It's not that we say anything defamatory, it's just that, well, I just don't want to be dealing with legal letters, I get enough of them as it is. Anyway, all of those are available right now at patreon.com forward slash tortoise and if you're not in a position to join us, recommend us to a friend. Send a WhatsApp to someone and tell them to give us a listen. If you see us on social media, maybe give us a retweet or give us a share because it's word of mouth again. No ads, no sponsors. We don't have the budget for it. I'm sorry to have to keep repeating myself, but we do rely entirely on you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. I'm shutting up now. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope. And I'm your host, Rory Hearn, and I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast today by Sersha Exton, who is a climate activist and as she describes herself, an almost gale goer, uh, which is fair play to her because um, my couple of fuckle are uh, just on a dawn and fods. Um, and uh, also, UN, um, she is a member of the Secretary General of the UN's Youth Advisory Group, group on Climate Change. Um, Sersha, delighted to have you on Reboot Republic. Thank you so much for having me. Um, you've been doing some really incredible, inspiring work and kind of saw you... Um, you it was your speech and some of your work um to the climate change conference the mary robinson climate change conference and you also um very effectively disrupted Eamon <laughs> ryan's speech as well which uh delighted to see um that action and you spoke in it um and you said and it's really i think just you know it, it inspired a lot of people your speech in terms of what you were saying about the need for action now maybe you could kind of i suppose start with um yeah what what kind of the main message you were trying to give at that speech and what what were you trying to say Not i think uh, to, what did you say yeah <laughs> <laughs> i think um one of the things that i was trying to highlight um is it was sort of a combination of things you know because as young people we're often, I've been told, you know, I've been a climate activist since I was 13. Um, and so that entire time, you know, I've been told I'm idealistic and I, na- I'm naive and all of this stuff. And I think I've kind of come to the realization that like I am angry, but that that anger comes from a place of, of hope almost, you know, um, mm. and that our, my anger is completely natural and that if people are not angry, there is kind of something wrong. You know what I mean? They don't fully understand the scope of the crisis or, or, you know, maybe they're just deliberately ignoring it. Um, and I also, you know, I'm personally really interested in in the economic side of the climate crisis. And so, you know, I really wanted to bring that in because that's so rarely discussed in these kind of spaces. Um, and I feel like it's such a big element of, you know, if, of climate action is reassessing the way that our economies work and um, kind of getting rid of this very extractivist mindset that that we've kind of employed for you know the last two centuries or so um and i think you know i also you know even ryan had been in the room he wasn't in the room when i gave the speech but there was an element of of like trying to discuss you know the fact that 
that you know our leaders they may say they have our best interests at heart but like clearly it's profits that they are most interested in um so i think that's kind of the general it sounds like a lot of things um and i think i just kind of wanted to capture like my beliefs and my anger and my emotion and i think it was really it was funny that it coincided with the protest because i think it it spoke to a lot of the things that we were feeling at that protest um you know that that feeling of having sacrificed so much for very little um in response so yeah yeah <laughs> and and it's you know very inspiring um because you are the grand old age of 18 is that right yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know and to be doing it um it is really you know it is inspiring and to think about it you know how do you see the world when you look at it in terms of and think about it and you say you're angry um you know from a young person's perspective how do you see the world our governments and and what they're doing now um i think generally most governments you know internationally and nationally don't really care about um you know equality and sustainability and and preventing climate change i think you know it very much feels like it's this you know attempt to like a lot of international policy you know the attempt is to maintain the status quo while doing the literal superficial bare minimum in terms of climate um i think like you know here in ireland we have a government that you know has a climate action plan and it's declared a climate emergency but the actions that it has, that it has taken are they somehow skirt entirely around any kind of systemic changes um and they're very they're very superficial um just so at the end of the year they can say well look what we did on on climate action so i feel like there is this this continued kind of attempt to maintain the way the things have always been done in terms of economics in terms of politics in terms of you know even just policy in general um and i think that makes me quite angry because i think in especially in democratic countries we're promised that change is coming and you know this is going to happen in 5 years and uh, especially as young people you know we're told you're going to be the leaders of the future and you know we're also taught you know i just finished my leaving cert not even uh, a month ago and you know we're taught that we live in a meritocracy we taught that we're taught that like we are able to change the system and yet you like the reality is that the system kind of it it doesn't want to be changed um uh and so yeah i think i think i am a bit pessimistic about or not even pessimistic but just cynical about about our and um, about our governments because i do think that you know their interests really don't necessarily lie in the welfare of, of the people and of the planet and that that sort of is disheartening to think about especially as a young person you know yeah it is and and i you know remember um when i would have been about a similar age getting active in politics in, in terms of activism and back in the late 1990s it would have been the kind of emergence of the global justice movement back then um and it it would have been very similar around you know seeing governments acting on behalf of corporations and of course what they were doing at that point was really embedding um policies neoliberal policies that were mm. you know putting the interests of these corporations at the heart of kind of this expansive financialized capitalism um the financial kind of markets the extraction, this rise of the global, you know, the big global corporate giants and the continued yeah. pursuit of obviously the fossil fuel uh, corporate agenda. But I remember, you know, us protesting then and feeling um, like we were angry against the injustice. Mm. But the sense of and the feeling and realization, like the environment was core to a lot of our concerns and what was happening, but a lot of it was around destruction of you know, rainforests, you know, the extractive model, but there wasn't this sense of doom or finality in terms of, you know, where there is now this, this sense within the climate crisis that, you know, they have fucked it and they are continuing to completely 
um, as you say yourself, ignore the scale of change that's needed. How do you deal with that or how do you view that, that sense that in some ways for people it's already too late? Or for the planet, should I say? Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't think it is too late at the moment. I think, you know, even if we're just going by the current kind of time frame, I think it was two days ago at 5 p.m. Irish summertime that the the clock ticked down to five years. So uh, we have basically exactly five years left before the tipping point of climate change before it becomes irreversible. So we do have time. It's very little, but it is there. Um, Explain that just briefly for listeners in terms of that clock. Yeah. They might be familiar with that. So the, that. Yeah, the clock um, is, I think, essentially, it's like it compiles all of the expectations of scientists um, and it sort of puts a timestamp. Now, obviously, it's not exact. Like, it's not going to be like exactly in five years, you know, on the on the 22nd, you know, the, the climate change will suddenly become so much worse. But it's like a general kind of expectation you know we hear a lot about like 2030 for example um yeah and so this is just saying that like it's a bit it's a bit sooner than that um so it's not exact but it it is sort of a general approximation of of where of the point at which we will be past like we will be like at, at, up to this point we'll be able to stop climate change after this we will be able to to adapt to climate change and prevent the worst effects of it but there will still be effects of it um, so I do think like in terms of that, there is like literally still time left, but also, you, and it's very little time admittedly, but I think, you know, you're right though. Like, I think the climate crisis, it is a catastrophic event. It is, un- you know, it, it's terrifying to think about, but it's not, it is going to destroy the very fabric of our societies. It's going to jeopardize our food security and, you know, the availability of like land and, and resources and all these kind of things, um, it's going to change the way that we operate society. So either we change it ourselves to create a world that that is kind of more equitable and equal, or we end up having to change in reaction to, you know, increasing natural disasters and, and you know, uh, incre- I, think, I think it's something like 1 billion climate refugees are going to be created in the next, uh, until something like 2050, you know. Um, and we will have to deal with all of that stuff and it will put increasing pressures on our already failing systems um, because we didn't really do anything about, about it. So I think it's definitely, it's not even, it, the failure is so monumental. You know what I mean? It's, it's so, it's so kind of like, it's a failure in all aspects of any kind of social justice or any kind of, you know, actual change because it, it jeopardizes equality, it jeopardizes quality of life, you know, all of these things. And the fact that governments across the world are just not interested in actually being, you know, radically shifting away from fossil fuels and, and you know, for example, implementing infrastructure like better public transportation, it's sort of, it's very depressing because it's kind of like we are headed towards what will be maybe in a century, maybe in more than a century, a, a global catastrophe. And people are already dying as a result of the climate crisis. It's just here, especially in the global north, we don't really feel that as much. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's, I, I think that the, you know, in terms of the five-year time frame, that's important, you know, that people understand there is so much we can still do. Yeah. But even, you know, within that, there is the the need, as you say, and you know, as we make this, you know, governments are failing to move radically enough, and that is because they are still locked in with fossil fuels. They're still locked in, and as you you know, brought back to what you were saying at the start, and I'd be interested to hear more in terms of this question of economics mm-hmm. and our economic model is still a capitalist one, which is still completely based on both accumulation, continuous growth, extraction. Um, and the at the heart of it, that is that fundamental problem that we still have this model which is based and views nature as an input into its economic yeah. model and doesn't value it and doesn't you know look at it or how does extraction cause problems um, and is based essentially on infinite growth and continued growth. Yeah. So maybe you could explain a little bit about that. Firstly, you know you're saying economics isn't talked 
about at these conferences, I assume the climate discussions. Maybe you could explain that a little bit. Well, first things first, if we look at the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, one of them, I think SDG 8, is something about decent jobs and economic growth. So the the Sustainable Development Goals immediately remove any kind of space for debate around whether growth is feasible. Um, and there's a, there's a fear when people mention, you know, the term degrowth or beyond or um, post growth. There's this, the UN, for example, does not like those terms. If you mention yeah. those terms, you're immediately branded as kind of like an idealist. And, um, and again, like all the rational kind of neoliberals, they don't like that rational, I'd say. Yeah. Um, so I think, first of all, like there is very little space for for talking about this because I think most people assume that it is it is kind of unquestionable that it is it's like mutable. Like I think um, economics is kind of treated like physics. Like oh, these are the things that happen, and you cannot break these laws. Like for example, you know, I think I've said in my speech. I refer to like you know the Newtonian law of physics, which is like for every reaction there'll be an for every action there will be an equal and opposite reaction and that's that law is enshrined in economics you know for every increase in price there will be a decrease in demand um and that's just the way that it is um so i think there's a, there's an element of like well we can't talk about it, we can't change it it's just the way that it is mm. um and i think that's very harmful because it is extractivist you know it is based around around the use of resources like even the term natural resources employs it um, implies that nature only exists as a resource mm. um and yeah. like even you know pollution in economics is described as an externality and like a negative um production externality just an unfortunate yeah. side effect of production um so i think even the language of economics is very much it's very kind of objectifying um and you know, I did economics at Leaving Cert and even like seeing these terms, you know, we've learned that strikes were bad for um, efficiency and all of this kind of thing. Um, and so there is this very, very much like, oh, well, that's just the way of the world. We can't do anything about that. And I think that's partially why people don't talk about it. But also the, a lot of the people who are in power and especially those who, you know, who have power over corporations, it benefits them not to talk about it. They like the model of constant growth because it lines their pockets more. And frankly, I think most CEOs, for example, really couldn't care less about like the climate crisis or long-term damages because they see their short-term profit. Um, and it's really, it's really interesting because like capitalism itself is self-destructive, you know, because at a certain point it takes all the resources that it can and there's nothing left. Um, and it's just interesting to see how, like, even though these kind of corporations use classical economics as a justification for their actions, in reality, they're also being irrational in their own books because they're not thinking ahead. They're not thinking about, like, the long term. They're not thinking about, you know, the, the survival of their, of their business and of their resources. They're just thinking about immediate profit. Um, which raises the point of the complete, you know, I discussed it with um, Vanessa Conroy in this podcast um, recently, you know, is a green capitalism possible? Mm. And it's not an actual. Yeah. No, it isn't. And like, there's this idea that like resources can be kind of separated from GDP um, and which is, you know, gross domestic product. But really that's impossible because gross domestic product is so resource intensive like there's an ipcc report released recently and it said that like although you know let's say the the carbon emissions being released for every unit of gdp generated is decreasing it's at such a small rate um or or no hang on no it it was that the the technology is becoming more efficient but we're we're just you know producing more and more and more gdp so it kind of cancels it out so like yeah technically each unit of gdp is more efficient but we're just producing more of it or or at least earning more of it gaining more of it and so it kind of cancels out any kind of efficiency that increased efficiency we might have um but yeah it's so i think and then there's also this idea that like you know oh well if we just replace fossil fuels with wind turbines everything will be fine but 
we consume, I think, I, I think it's the West as a whole or just global north. If every single person across the planet consumed the same amount of resources as people on the global north, we would, we wouldn't, we would have to have five planets to sustain our, um, our consumption. So really like that's some, I would say more important to consider, like how much energy you're consuming, how much, re- how many, how much kind of resource use are we entertaining? Um, rather than kind of like where, like obviously where the energy is coming is important, but like in isolation, it's really not going to do that much if we don't consider like our own consumption and all of these kind of things. Yeah. And, and absolutely. And, and again, back to, you know, you think of everything we have, like the technology, the, you know, the production, like corporations, businesses, you know, their model is based on continued and expansive consumption. And as you say, that is completely irrational on a finite planet with finite resources. Um, and it is, of course, because their their response and their or their responsibility is to maximize profit for their shareholders and returns. And um, you know, that's the flaw at the heart of the model. And you know, it, it is it is great to hear you talking about it and you know others. And it is it is a real need to talk more about this, how the, that you know economic model that we have is is utterly flawed when it comes to sustainability and um, and the other side of that, which you've mentioned also, um, is the issue of social justice and inequality and how, because for a lot of people who are struggling, the idea that, oh, climate requires more, um, you know, restraints and more, you know, costs is just completely alienating. And they're like, why the hell would I, do I want that? Why would I care for that? Um and we see part of that fueling, you know, the anti-climate um, response, that that reaction. Um, and, you know, I just heard today, for example, they were saying on, on the in the media here that, like, they're going to introduce measures which will, uh, they're posing that would cost, it would cost you, I think it was like 40 euro to drive between Maynooth and Dublin, for example. And immediately my head goes down, what are all those people who are struggling to drive into, for example, nurses uh, driving into hospitals in Dublin because they can't afford housing in the city, thinking in their heads going, oh, am I going to vote for policies that are going to mean I'm going to be literally struggling to survive even further? And rather than going, well, actually, if we completely reshaped our economy, which is, of course, the argument that Naomi Klein and lots of others have made, um, that it is how we use the resources we have, that at the moment they're literally being consumed by the top um, in societies and the allocation and the complete wasteful allocation of resources that if we put it into things like proper public transport, you know, public housing um, you know, decent health systems that ensuring people have a standard of living that then, you know, a transition, a just a genuinely just transition would benefit them. But the problem that that runs up against is that's not in, in the interest of the big corporations who just want to sell products and, do not want resources to be taken away from that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it brings back to to what I was saying before, you know, like individual action is really important, but ultimately like we need systemic changes. And I do think, you know, there is a level of superficiality in in the policies of, of, you know, this government in terms of climate action, you know, they implement a carbon tax and, and it's somehow supposed to discourage fossil fuel use when genuinely there's no other alternatives or, there are, but they're too expensive. Um, so I think it's it's like it's just sort of what the easiest thing is, if that makes sense, or, or kind of it, it's like they want to go back to the UN, for example, and say, "Well, look what we've implemented." Um, but in reality, it's just widening, you know, cost of living, um, the cost of living crisis, and it, it's. I think also gen- generally, like climate action from governments does not take into account like what I was saying social justice and equality when really like I think if you're right like if if these social services were available if if people could you know have have public housing available to them public transport if healthcare was more affordable all of these things you know if we kind of ingrained in our society this idea of sustainability and climate action as climate justice uh, as something that is not, it's not just about, you know, the environment, which for a lot of people, I think feels very distant, but it, it's mm-hmm. actually something that challenges like the very roots of capitalism 
Um, because, you know, capitalism, the roots of capitalism and the climate crisis are directly intertwined. The reason why, like, the Industrial Revolution happened and the reason why, you know, we became so reliant on fossil fuels was because of the gen- because of this attempt to accumulate more wealth, to generate more profit. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think definitely it's very, it's actually kind of harmful sometimes the, the, to me because, uh, like, the Greens, for example, implement, cer- implement certain policies and... That means that all environmentalists are kind of tarred with the same brush, and it's like, yeah. no, I think that a carbon tax is not the, the the best first decision to make, because I do think you need to have better public transportation in place first. You need to have, you know, these alternatives that are affordable instead of just let's buy electric vehicles. Um, you know, like it's so it is. It's a bit frustrating in, in that regard, and um, and I think. Yeah, I don't know. It's just it's complicated, and um, I think that that people a lot, especially farmers, for example, they feel very threatened in terms of climate action, um, and it's difficult because the government is not interested in a just transition for farmers, at least not seemingly. They're not at, they're not communicating that. Um, they seem to be more interested in just again being able to go back to like the United Nations with their their progress report and say, well, we've done this, we've cut the national herd or whatever they've done. Um, and I think it, it's very, it, it creates a big issue because, you know, not just in terms of our economy, but in, in culturally as well, agriculture is an incredibly important part of our, our country, you know? And just the fact that they've been completely alienated, it means that the, massive lobbying block that they are as farmers they're not in favor of a lot of environmental policies so there's no intention it's funny because the minister was actually saying in his speech at that that event that we need to bring everyone along and we need to like talk to everyone and yet there seems to be no intention of actually bringing anyone but like the very upper echelons of of society along um and that's not what climate action should be it should be you know the it, it should be the liberate like it should be the the deliberation of workers it should be the the excessive like ev- sustainable products being successful ac- accessible sorry um and it's not that doesn't seem to be the idea like at the moment it's very much like well this is what we can do to make ourselves look better <laughs> yeah you know? yeah uh, and just in terms of that, the kind of um, where the movement is going and the climate mm. justice movement and what's happening, and in some respects, um, it you know the, the it can be analysed as saying, oh, the, you know, the movement has you know completely subsided in terms of you know mass protests, and um, not dissimilar to the housing uh, protests as well. COVID had a massive impact in terms of the the demobilisation um, of people, but. In terms of where the movement is at now, and particularly, I suppose, the critical side of that movement, the movement on the streets, the Extinction Rebellions, um, the Fridays for Future, what's your kind of analysis or, or, you know, in, in terms of your own involvement in those? Where do you see those at and where do you see them going? I think, um, you know, obviously, like you said, COVID-19 was a big kind of demobilization um, because, you know, people had more immediate concern, which is kind of, it's understandable, you know, mm. like, but um, and then after COVID, I think I, a lot of us also, you know, we had left school or, you know, I was in, I was in fifth year and sixth year after COVID. Yeah. So I had, again, more immediate concerns with my leaving search. Yeah. So I think, you know, there, there is an element of like, we were growing up, but also I think one of the things that really gave us our power uh, in terms of the strikes was that kind of unpredictability was that sort of like oh these young people are actually on the streets protesting like when had we seen so many young people across the planet coming together to protest about anything you know um and i think i think that gave us an element of of power and and there was a lot of people like mobilizing behind us because because we symbolized this kind of what felt really exciting and new um and it was really exciting and new, but obviously COVID kind of put it a little bit of a premature end to it. Um, I think personally, you know, 
it would be really interesting to see how different forms of direct action could be, you know, like, like, for example, interrupting the minister, that was really a lot more effective than we thought it would be in terms of, mm. you know, garnering, me- garnering media attention. Um, and obviously, that's not the, the primary objective change is the primary objective, but it, it certainly helps to have that attention. And particularly as we've sort of, we have for a variety of reasons been in the background for a while as a movement because of like because of these all of these issues um i think it was really interesting to see what kind of caught people's attention and um, so i think certainly me personally i'm not speaking for any anybody else or any group or anything but i would be really interested to see like how we can do those kind of disruptions how we can kind of remind the minister remind the government that we're still there um and that we're still kind of angry and that we we haven't forgotten um because all you know protests are incredibly important but it that momentum has died on has died a little bit and so while trying to get that back i think a good way to do that would be potentially through you know considering more direct approaches obviously within reason um but no, yeah there's, I, no, there's no need to be within reason <laughs> <laughs> that's true i'm just saying that to cover unreasonableness is needed yes absolutely no absolutely and i think it's and gotten disruption. to the point yeah it's gotten to the point now where it's because i remember when we did it there was this one person who stood up and started talking about how you know their group would be happy to do non-confrontational discussion with the minister and it was very funny because um all of us who stood up we have all been in meetings with the minister before um, and we've all like sat across the table with him and talked to him non-confrontationally and it and it was just kind of funny because it was like yeah we've, we've tried that like protest is not protest is not like your first line of defense especially this kind of protest it is a last resort to some extent you know it's it's sort of like we tried everything else and nothing's happened so this is kind of the last thing we have in our arsenal um it was very interesting as well because I think the combination of the protest and then me speaking was very interesting because people saw us and thought, oh, these angry young people. And a lot of them actually hushed us or were, it was kind of horrible to see because it was a climate conference, but a lot of them were very like, oh, this is disrespectful, you know? And, um, you know, we were said, told, oh, but, you know, you should be listening to these people and, I remember saying, yeah, but I wouldn't interrupt anyone else. It's just because he's the minister. Like, I'll listen to the scientists. I'll listen to, you know, the 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 other people speaking at this conference, but not the minister because I don't really care what he has to say because he's not doing anything. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, when I spoke, I think people were sort of like, wow, okay, that was really weird of me. I shouldn't have done that. Um, I, I, I think... Because I think people felt like almost a guilt at the fact that they didn't support us, and it was it was a bit ridiculous to be honest. It was a bit upsetting, um, be- and a bit demoralizing because all of these you know adults in the room n- shaking their heads and and tutting. Explain and- exactly what happened, just for listeners. Yeah. So, well, Eamon Ryan was speaking, and we we had known he was speaking, and it was very last minute, and um. My two colleagues and, and friends, Jessica and Magdalena, uh, Jessica had said, come on, we have to do something. And I was absolutely terrified, shaking. But then eventually we stood up and we just held the signs for a while. And then he started, I don't even remember what he said, but it was completely ridiculous. It was, first of all, it, uh, he refused to look at us. He looked at the other side of the room. Yeah. And then when he did look at us, he sort of addressed looked into like my eyes and we started talking about how we need to talk to each other in like a civil manner or something and then we started chanting because and he's just stopped talking and just kind of looked at us like a disappointed teacher um but yeah i obviously couldn't really hear anything because i was chanting but you know my my mother was in the audience and there was other people in the audience and they said people were like going why what are you doing um and it was like it was kind of it was very disheartening because it was like Everyone here is supposed to be like interested in the climate crisis. And yet they, you know, somebody apparently muttered, oh, I thought this would be the only place where they'd actually respect Damon Ryan. And it's like, but why? If you're genuinely interested in climate action, why would you respect the figurehead of a government that is not doing enough? Like, 
I mean, I respect him. Like, I'm not as an individual. I'm sure he's a nice person, but he's also the minister. Like, I'm not. I'm gonna treat him. I think I said um, at the end of my speech, someone asked a question in the audience about how did you, how did that make you feel? And I was really angry at that point because I had just done the speech and I had just done the protest. And I said, I live in a democracy. I have the right to to protest my leaders. You know, like um, we don't live in some sort of authoritarian society where I have to just accept that he's incompetent. Um, and I think the fact that people do accept that is is a bit outrageous because, you know, it's like we've forgotten that like democracy is supposed to be the people granting power to authority rather than authority having a kind of almost aristocratic power over people. Um, and so we, we maintain the right to protest them. Um, so yeah, it was, it was very weird. It was, it was, you know, because when you're at the protests, mo- everyone there supports the protest. Everyone at the protest supports the protest. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, but like here it was it was just weird because like these people, like I said, they're supposed to be interested in climate action, but it's such it's a very political climate action. And I'm as in, you know, I'm I'm not saying that I believe that climate action is something that can be achieved in sort of nonpartisan politics, because um I do think that obviously there are elements of climate action that like neoliberals are not gonna agree with, but I do think you know, I don't think it's wise to kind of blindly support the policies of one party ever. Um, and it, it was, it was, it was very strange. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it sounds, you know, really difficult and challenging. And, and I've been in spaces like that myself before where you've stood up and you've, I remember challenging Bertie Ahern uh, at the height of the Celtic Tiger in similar circumstances and feeling that, um, that energy, the anger, but also the nervousness of it, and and yeah. the, and and I think you know in situations like we were maybe at meetings which were not everyone there who was supportive or, or everyone there should I say would have been not as critical as that audience that you were at should have been, and I think that it's it is a reflection, a really bad reflection back on them that they would say those things and that you know that they would not turn around and go isn't that what youth should be doing? You know, isn't that brilliant that we have young people who are willing to be brave and stand up and critique and question, which is, as you say, the heart of a democracy, you know, that if young people aren't doing that, there's something fundamentally wrong. Young people, but to be in terms of scaling it, you know, it's in terms of thinking about it, that those older people in the room should have been going, well, actually, that's what we should be doing. And we should stand up beside them, you know, and applaud them. And yes, it's uncomfortable. And yes, it's difficult. But it's not disrespectful to a minister to stand up and protest. It is actually (laughs) called democracy. (laughs) And to, you know, they should have those people in that room, which is, again, a major problem with a lot of you know, people who are saying they're supportive of, you know, mm. climate, you know, climate action and that is that they're not willing to challenge the status quo. They're not willing to do those uncomfortable actions that actually point out to people and to the wider public that hang on, this isn't, you know, enough and something much more is needed. And I think it does show the power of protest and that, you know, across history, it has been always people who have stood up you know, that have changed things fundamentally, you know, from civil rights movement across the board, that's what changes things. Um, For sure, here in Ireland, you know, like the reason why we gained our independence was because people stood up and did uncomfortable things. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, so, you know, it, it is great you did it. And I look forward to seeing many more events disrupted by you and others and uh, we will we will be there in solidarity when we can um I, a question just on the the housing issue which um you know again is one of the other issues that uh the other kind of existential issue for your generation um i have made the case that you know addressing housing in a completely different way offers a way to to address both climate and the housing crisis and it would require 
a complete reimagining of how we use our vacant and derelict buildings, you know, converting them to homes and the state playing a central role in supporting communities in building affordable, sustainable green homes. Um, do you see that as something that's relevant or connected? Or do you think about that just out of interest? Oh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, first of all, there's that element of like a people who, who do not have access to affordable and adequate housing understandably they can't necessarily care about the climate crisis that's not a minimum an immediate thought and i think mm. in some ways that is sort of deliberate it, it kind of separates out it makes the climate change a kind of middle class issue mm. yeah. um, and that's a problem because it is an issue that that will affect all of us but especially those who are maybe you know lower on the socioeconomic kind of spectrum worse um and so i think there's that element but also like like I was talking about before, I mean, climate action needs to be coupled with social justice um, or it will not be like it needs to be coupled with complete system change or, or it will not be effective. And I think an element of that is equality and an adequate standard of living. And I think housing is one of the ways to ensure that the standard of living is increased. So I think and then there's also the other element of, of like, you know, with climate refugees, with um and not just from other countries, but from like the from the coasts of of Ireland and and, and kind of countries that are closer to home, um, we will have more strain on our already very strained housing system. Um, and so, either we sort it out now, and so ensure that you know if there are more refugees, for example, we have the space for them, or we continue to just stockpile. Kind of, we continue to to have increasing issues in terms of accessibility of housing and we continue to kind of you know give fuel to these debates these these talking points from like far-right groups that imply that the problem is refugees and, and immigrants and and you know i think so i think i think it's definitely a really important issue to consider um and one of the most important ones as well i think it's one that isn't often considered you know, usually we talk about energy, we talk about biodiversity, we talk about, you know, the things that are very closely interlinked to the climate crisis, but very rarely do we talk about actual systemic change. And we can see that really clearly, like even with the big climate conferences that happen at the UN, environmental ministers go, you know, financial ministers don't go, um, you know, like education ministers don't go, equality ministers don't go. Um, and it's really interesting because I, I do think there's a tendency across, you know, political spaces to compartmentalize these issues. You know, the housing crisis has nothing to do with the, the climate crisis when really, again, it's that same thing of like, they're very much interlinked. Um, like the reason, you know, we have a housing crisis is again, because of that profit motive and the climate crisis is because of the profit motive. So. Yeah, I think it's definitely an important issue and it's not one that's really discussed in conjunction with climate enough, I think. Yeah, ab absolutely. Yeah, well said. Um, in terms of, um, obviously, you have your Leaving Cert results coming up soon enough and best of luck with that. And I'm sure regardless of those results, you're going to do um, incredible things and you already are doing incredible things um, and you will continue to pursue and um be active and i hope so anyway and um yeah have you thoughts in terms of what you would like to do yeah so i'm taking a gap year this year um which is really nice i'll have my results for everything so what i'm doing my ceo and and i'm also applying to the uk so when i'm doing ucas i'll have all my results there which is nice yeah um, yeah i would be interested in in studying you know some variation of politics sociology maybe economics but only in a way to critique it so not because you know the way that that economic students apparently every, for every year that they study economics they get more selfish so um that's hopefully would not be what i would be doing but more kind of studying it in order to understand it and then critique it um but yeah like sociology anthropology politics some variation of of that um because I think, you know, for me, like, I'm really passionate about this stuff. I'm really interested in it. And I think also it's just, it's, it's kind of, it is disheartening as a young person to like kind of 
have to face these systems and, and be told that I don't understand them. So then I'll go to university and I'll study them and then I will understand them. And so I can shut that back in their faces. <laughs> you already have a pretty impressive understanding yeah. of them. <laughs> but absolutely, no, they're great subjects to study. Um, absolutely fantastic. And then I throw in my own social policy as well. There is a great one. Yeah. Uh, to study but no politics and uh sociology are too brilliant and economics as well i did economics um as well a bit in in university and it is very important to understand it in terms mm. of particularly the thinking and the the neoclassical thinking in order to be able to critique it um and increasingly we hear um after michael d rattled them all a bit that economists are supposedly um taking diverse uh, schools of theory behind them. So you might even come across um, a bit of Keynes and Marx in um, economics, though uh, probably highly unlikely. But you never know. You never know. <laughs> we live in hope. No, there are. There are some good economists and hopefully... Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, the, uh, th- those ones who are more critical and radical will yeah. be brought in more. Um, and in terms of politics, would you ever consider going into politics? I'm a bit torn, to be honest, because on one hand, you know, I feel like it would make sense, but um, there's sort of, you know, the the reality that I'm not sure if any of the, the at least none of the big parties really align with my mm. political views. And the unfortunate reality is that if I went into politics, I probably wouldn't be ever in government. I'd either be in an opposition party or as an independent. Uh, and that's fine, but it's still that element of like, how do I actually um, make change? But I, I, I'm sort of, I'm sort of, I'm torn. I'll, I'll see, I'll see what happens. I don't, I'm not at the moment. I'm not like definitively going to run for politics at a certain point, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. Very good. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting because a lot of people, a lot of activists, and people who are engaged politically and socially would be quite torn about that between you know, going into politics and, um, you know, but I think a way of thinking about it is, you know, you're in politics now. And I think that's often, you know, when people ask that question, would you consider going into politics? And for many of us who are activists and socially engaged, we are already in politics. And it's about an expansive form of understanding of what is politics and political engagement. And, you know, people have, you know, they're, as again, you know, we look through history and you look through, you know, even the the student strike movement and how much that influenced politics more than mainstream politics itself. And, and yeah. you know, there are loads of ways of influencing society and change, um, uh, you know. So listen, best of luck on your path. And just for out of interest, what would you recommend for listeners in terms of if they were interested in getting involved in action around climate change? Is there any particular groups you'd point them to or things they could do? Um, first of all, I'm just going to say, I don't know if you can hear the washing machines. Oh, no, it's great background. I have to say, it sort of gives that sense of uh, impending doom. Things are just going <laughs> to off, blast off. So it's brilliant. Great accompaniment. Good, good. Um, yeah, I, I think it's just getting louder. I can't um, hear it now. So that it's obviously gone beyond the ear pitch of my sound. Yeah, okay, that, that's good. That's good. Um, I think one of the most important things that people can do is to educate themselves and to read certain books and things like that. Like Donut Economics by Kate Rayworth is a really good, um, she basically outlines what's wrong with the economic system and then gives an alternative system. And Jason Hickel's uh, Less is More does a similar thing, um, but from a more anthropological perspective. Um, And I think there are a lot of kind of books like that that are really, even your own book, (laughs) of course, um, that are that kind of assess like the issues with the system and not even just through an environmental lens but but like I think that's very important uh, but in terms of like activism groups I mean you know for young people we do have the Fridays for Future movement which is mm. what I'm involved in and, and um, you know we're, we're we're trying to like build back up momentum at the moment so we do need as many people as we can get um, especially people who are still at school um, particularly people who are still at school because we don't have a lot of those anymore. Um, and there's also, you know, there are, like, nothing is coming to my mind for some reason, but, you know, there are, like, lobby groups and campaign groups and all kinds of kind of groups. But also, I think the thing is, for me, you know, when I got involved, I didn't necessarily get involved to be in a group. I just started protesting. 
And yeah. it out that, you know, the, I was involved in a wider network of people that kind of formed into a more solid group as the years went by. But I think there is something to be said for just grabbing a moment. If Eamon Ryan is speaking at something and you have this feeling like you want to interrupt him, just do it. Um, you don't need to necessarily be affiliated. I mean, even the protests that, that we had, although all three of us are in Fridays for Future, you know, we did it completely of our own whims. It wasn't necessarily on behalf of Fridays for Future, you know? So I think I think it's really important that that people recognize their individual power as well. Um, and that, like you said, you have to do these uncomfortable things because if we don't, like we don't have that much time left. We have time left, but we don't have that much. So I think we have to start putting ourselves out of our comfort zones, you know, through this kind of this this disruption and this direct action and reminding leaders, especially next year is a general election, you know, like we need to ensure that that we we ensure that that our, our government is some it's a government that actually represents our interests. And I think voting is also the most important thing we can do as members of democracy. Um, and I think, I feel like there's a lot of, a lot of people kind of see voting as like, well, it's only one vote, you know, and I don't like anyone on the ballot, but there are always people who are better than other people, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so I think, I think voting is, is the single most important thing we can do as citizens of a democracy. And so we should take hold of that and make sure that we put our votes, you know, we put planet above kind of, I, I think. There was, we kind of did that in the last general election, but we were very much disappointed by what we got. Like we had the green wave, but then the greens were not quite what they kind of what everyone thought they would be. But we need to do that again. Um, you know, putting climate the climate crisis above and in conjunction with all of these other social justice issues. I think that's probably the most important thing we can do, and I'll be able to do it for the first time, which I'm very excited about. <laughs> very good. Well, I listen. I hope. All young people do as well vote because there's such a potential to bring change next year. There really is. Um, and, you know, really hope hope that will happen. Listen, Saoirse, it was wonderful to talk to you. Thanks a million for coming on Reboot today. Thank you so much for having me. And that was Saoirse Exon there. Um, and listen, I, I found it really, really fascinating and inspiring as well. And I know um, a lot of listeners will have enjoyed that too. And if you can, remember that we are an independent media Produced by um, Tortoise Shack Media. If you can, consider becoming a patron and supporting us. And as always, if you can, share the podcast around. Let people know you're listening. We reached a milestone very recently of half a million downloads. So we're absolutely delighted with that. And again, it shows that a lot of people are listening. A lot of people are um, getting a lot out of these podcasts. But they do cost to produce. um, And if you can, please consider support us. But really, it is heartening to realize and and hear so many people are listening and um just thank everyone who's contributed thank tony for producing um and to you listeners for listening and we will talk to you all very very soon 